All right, so glad you could join us again this evening as we look at some more of the uh, basic Bible teachings in our webinar. And uh, it's sometimes amazing to me how interconnected the tops, topics that Mike and I cover are. And I suppose that's not surprising seeing we're looking at the Bible where everything's interconnected, but this is the introductory verse for Mike's section, and it was the exact verse that I was going to start with as well. But I'm, I'm kind of suspicious that Mike did this on purpose, knowing what I was speaking on, um, because it's very connected. And we'll just have to wait to see till Mike's section to see what his Bible reading section is about. He's going to talk about um, the, the help that we need sometimes with Bible study, asking others for direction and the importance of doing that. But first of all, we chose this verse. I, I chose this verse for, for the beginning of the prophecy section because it, it refers to Jesus explaining to his disciples after his resurrection that all the details of his life were recorded in the Old Testament. Walking on the road with two of his disciples, the disciples don't even know that it's Christ. And he says, look, my whole life has been predicted in advance in the Old Testament. And I think there's probably a reference to Christ on just about every page of the Old Testament. But tonight we're going to limit ourselves to the, uh, the prophecies about the birth of Christ, specifically the geography of his birth. And so let's get right into the Bible prophecy section, and we're going to look at where Jesus was born. And I, I think there's two things incredible about these group of prophecies. The first being something we've seen before of how precise and accurate they are and how detailed. And the second is new. It's about how an understanding of prophecies and getting the prophecies understood correctly affected the people that lived at the time of Christ, of whether they would accept Jesus as the Messiah or whether they would reject them. And there's a lesson to us that as we look at Bible prophecy, that we need to get it right. We need to know what the Bible's teaching so that we make the right decisions in life. So I'm going to guess that everybody online tonight knows where Jesus was born, that he was born in the city of Bethlehem, in a manger. We know the story well, but did you ever think about the fact that this was prophesied 700 years before it happened? So here's a verse from Micah chapter 5. Now he's a, a prophet to the nation of, of, of Judah or to the, the people of Judah. He's a contemporary with Isaiah. You can see him there. He lived just a little bit before Daniel, a few hundred years after David the king that we looked at before. And he says, but thou Bethlehem Ephrata, and that's to identify that it's the Bethlehem in Judah, as opposed to another Bethlehem that was in the land. Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old and of everlasting. If we put up a map here, you can see in the center there's two circles, but we're looking at the lower one. That's where Bethlehem was right in the center of the land of Israel, just a little south of Jerusalem, about five miles. Up in the north, I've circled the area of Galilee, which is where Mary and Joseph lived. And you think, well, how was it that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem when his parents were from Galilee? And we'll, we'll get to that in a minute or so. But uh, the first thing you notice when you look at Micah is actually an important phrase here, that this, this son that's going to come from Bethlehem would be ruler in Israel. And you, you can see the theme that we've talked about over and over again, that Jesus Christ was going to sit on David's throne 
and he was going to be king of the world, which hasn't happened yet. That's something that's going to happen in the future. So really the reference to Bethlehem is as much about Jesus being the descendant of David as giving us a geographical location. But there's another amazing aspect here, and it's the, the providence of God. If you were to go to Luke chapter 2, uh, you'd find all the details about how God brought Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. And what's amazing is, is God works with the rulers of the day. He, there's a decree from Caesar Augustus. You'll remember a, a taxation, which was more of a, a census. And every family had to go back to their roots, where their family was from. And Joseph and Mary were both from the family of David. They could trace their lineage right back to King David. And they would both go then to the city of Bethlehem. But what's remarkable about this is that it, it just happens at just the time when Mary is about to give birth. It says in Luke 2 that she was great with child. And imagine the edict coming at that point that you need to go to Bethlehem when Mary is, is quite far along in her pregnancy. Well, this is the hand of God. We call it providence, where he's working behind the scenes to make sure that the prophecies, like this one in Micah, would come to pass, however unlikely they might seem. But there's one last point of, of Micah chapter 5 before you, you go on, and it's this phrase here at the end of the verse that I've underlined there, the goings forth have been from old. And that's a really interesting phrase. It's, it's basically saying that, that all the aspects of Christ's life were slowly revealed to us. His goings forth have been from old. From the beginning of the Bible, Jesus existed in God's plan, in God's mind, not as, not as a person, but he was in the mind of God. And, and what God does through the Bible is he slowly reveals all the details. And think about this remarkable progression that takes place in, in Genesis 3. Now, this is a prophecy that I want to look at in a, in a future webinar. As soon as Adam and Eve sin, God says, well, I'm going to send a man, the, the descendant of a woman, who's going to defeat sin and, and solve what's happened here in the garden with sin. By the time you get to Genesis 9, we find out, well, it's not just going to be a descendant of, of Eve, but it's actually going to be from the family of Shem. Noah has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and the, the seed is going to come from, from Shem, from the Semitic peoples. Three chapters later, we know it's from the family of Abraham, in other words, from the nation of Israel. By the end of Genesis, in Genesis 49, we're told that it's going, he's going to come from the tribe of Judah. Last week, we talked about he was going to come from the family of David, and you can see it focusing in, narrowing down where Jesus is going to come from. And now, 700 years before Jesus' birth, it's narrowed down to the city of Bethlehem. Elsewhere, we're told that it's going to be a virgin that conceives. And, and so all these pieces come to pass in Christ's birth. Well, we have three prophecies. This is the first one, and we're going to move on to the second. They all have to do with geography. But this time, we're going to look at the fulfillment first. So rather than looking at the prophecy and then how it was fulfilled in the New Testament, we're going to go to Matthew. And what's neat about Matthew is that Matthew uses this phrase over and over again in his gospel that it might be fulfilled. And what he's saying to us is these events that take place in Jesus' life, look back in the Old Testament and you'll find them predicted in earlier times in the scripture. So, you know, verse 13, arise and take the young child and his mother, this is after Jesus' birth, and flee into Egypt. Remember, Herod wants to kill all the children. And so they, they flee, Joseph and Mary and Jesus, into Egypt. And we're there until the death of Herod, it says in verse 15. 
that it might be fulfilled. This is that phrase that gets repeated 10 times in Matthew and seven in John, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying, out of Egypt have I called my son. So again, you see God's providence that he's working beside the scenes to make sure that things take place in the life of Mary and Joseph so that their life fulfills his prophecies. But we have two questions. Where in the Old Testament does this prophecy come from? And why did God want to be able to say, I called my son out of Egypt? What does that mean? Well, you can probably answer the first one. Where does it come from? Because Mike was talking to us a few weeks ago about cross-references. And you might have a Bible that, that points you to Hosea chapter 11. And you can see there in verse 1 the exact phrase, When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. But especially as you start reading into verse 2, you think, well, I don't think I would have known that was a prophecy of Jesus. It sounds like it's talking about the nation of Israel when Israel was a child. They came out of Egypt. In verse 2, they sacrificed to Balaam and burnt in incense to graven images. That's what Israel did when they came out of Egypt. It clearly applies to the nation of Israel coming out of Egypt in the days of, of Moses. But Matthew tells us that this was a prophecy of Christ. And so what we have, friends, is another example of dual application where it applies to the nation of Israel, but it also applies to Jesus. And you start to see connections between those. Um, Israel was the firstborn nation, the first nation that God chooses. Jesus was his firstborn son. Both of them spent time in Egypt. And when you start to think about it, you think, well, why, why did Israel go into Egypt? Well, remember, Joseph was sold by his brothers. They wanted to kill him, and it was his escape. They, uh, they sold him instead. Um, and the whole family moves there to avoid death because of a famine. And Jesus is fleeing with his parents into, into Egypt to avoid death at the hands of Herod. And Joseph becomes the chief ruler and actually saves his family. And Jesus is going to be the ruler of the world, and he's going to save his family. And, and that's called a type, which we'll also talk about as we go into Bible prophecy. So when you connect these scriptures, you start to see that there's a lot of pieces that, that fit together. And uh, when we do it geography, we see that he goes down from Bethlehem, spends some time there, and then to fulfill prophecy, God, through an angel, says, okay, I want you to go back to your country. That's when Herod dies and an angel tells Joseph and Mary to go back to their own country. But instead of settling in Bethlehem or in Jerusalem, they return to the city of Nazareth, right up there at the north. And it's hard to see in this map, but uh, just up there in Galilee is the city of Nazareth. Now, what's fascinating is that this prophecy is all, or this event, this detail of Jesus' life is also a, a prophecy. And Matthew tells us this in verse 23 of Matthew 2. And if you follow through the story in verses 19 and 20, Herod dies. The angel says they should go back out of Egypt, back to Israel. And as they get there, as they want to settle in Jerusalem or in perhaps Bethlehem, they're being warned of God that that's not safe and that they should go to Galilee. And so he ends up settling, the family does, in Nazareth. And look at what Matthew says in verse 23, that it might be fulfilled, there's that phrase again, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. And again, so for some reason, God wants to be able to call his son a Nazarene. And it's a study for an entirely different day. 
but a Nazarene was an Israelite who chose to commit themselves to the service of God. But what prophecy does this fill? Where does the prophecy come from? And in fact, you might not have this in your margin because it's puzzled Bible students. But it actually comes from Isaiah chapter 11. And if we were to put Isaiah 11 on the screen here, there's a prophecy and it's about Jesus. The way you know is that it's talking about a stem or a branch that comes out of the family tree of Jesse, who was the father of David. So we know that Jesus traces his lineage all the way back to David, the son of Jesse. And the branch there is referring to Jesus. Now, how in the world does that connect with the Nazarene? Well, we need to know a little bit about Hebrew, which I know very little about, but I can look up in a book and I can find out that the, the word for branch is actually Netzer, which is the root for Nazareth. And in English, you can almost see the connection there, Netzer and, and Nazareth. And uh, there's the reference that actually talks about Jesus uh, being from Nazareth. But what's interesting is the meaning of the word. It actually means, as you would expect, a little twig or a sprout. So not a big branch like we might think about, but a small little twig or a sprout. In a comparison to a tree, it's absolutely nothing. It's humble. And that's what Nazareth was. It was a, a humble little town in Galilee. And who would think that the, the Son of God would come from such a small, insignificant place? You know, when Nathaniel, who's one of the 12 disciples, was introduced to Jesus, he actually says to the other disciple, he says, can, any, can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Because everybody despised Galilee in general, and especially Nazareth. And the other disciple said, well, well come and see. I think you'll, you'll be convinced when you meet Jesus. But the lesson is, is that Jesus was to come from humble beginnings, and he was to be a humble man. And there's a lesson there for us that, that we too should be humble. We shouldn't look to our lineage. We shouldn't look to where we come from. We should be humble individuals and God can work with us. And note too that the reference here in, in Isaiah 11 is that he would come from the family of David. Okay, but what's the point of, of prophecy? Now imagine if you knew your Old Testament really well, you lived at the time of Christ and you knew these three prophecies, one of them very easy, one of them a little more complicated, and, and the last one maybe a little bit obscure. But imagine if you put all those pieces together and you realize that the, the Messiah who you were looking for would be born in Bethlehem, he would spend time in Egypt, and he would come and live in Nazareth. Those are pretty specific characteristics. And if, if you thought that a teacher came along with those exact same characteristics, you would recognize him as the Messiah especially if that's what he claimed to be. But you know what? They didn't. The majority of the people at the time of Jesus rejected him. And why? Why did they reject him? Why did they get it so wrong and put to death the Son of God? Well, when you think about Bible prophecy, there's a few reasons. Some of them didn't know the scriptures. They didn't know that there were prophecies about the Messiah. Some didn't know the facts of Jesus' birth. And some knew the prophecies and interpreted them wrong. And I want you to finish with me in John chapter 7. And I wish we were all in person and we could open our Bibles together and spend a bit of time looking at John 7. It's a really fun chapter to read. It's the last year of Christ's ministry. The whole country knows about Jesus. 
but the excitement's kind of worn off. His, his healings, you know, it's, they're done with that. The miracles, yeah, they know about them. They've heard them all. And his teachings are really hard to accept. You have to change your life. You have to live differently. And people are beginning to depart from Jesus. And the people are divided in their opinion. Uh, what's fun about John chapter 7 is that you read it and you just kind of laugh because there's all these different opinions that contradict each other. And I encourage you to read the chapter. But what's relevant to us is this discussion that they have about whether Jesus is the Messiah that they've been looking for. They're all looking for a savior and they don't know if Jesus is, is the one. And they base their opinion on where Jesus is from. And there's a lot of misinformation. So if we jump over to John 7, and what I've tried to do is just show you a few of the key verses. You're gonna to have to put them all together. But here in verse 40, um, Here's the context. Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said, of a truth, this is the prophet, like to Moses. They were looking for one that would be like Moses. Others said, this is the Christ. This is actually the Messiah. And then others said, well, he can't be the Christ because he comes from Galilee. And, and the point is, is that they're basing their acceptance or rejection of Jesus based on their understanding of prophecy. And that's really good. But sometimes they don't do it properly. So they're basing it on prophecy, which is excellent. So here's a group earlier in the chapter, and they say, well, you know what? This is a neat man, but he can't be the Christ because we don't know where the Christ is going to come from. And these people represent those who don't even know that there's prophecies about Christ. We know that at least two very you know, clear ones and, and one that's a little more obscure, but there were prophecies. There's, they knew they would come from David, from the tribe of Judah. And some said, well, we don't even know where Christ will come from. And we know where he's from. He's from Nazareth. And who would come out of Nazareth is essentially that. So here's a group of people that didn't know the prophecies in the Bible. Well, there's another group that actually knew the prophecies. These are the Pharisees. And they're actually pretty smug. Um, because they, they look at common people and they say, well, I'm glad we're not like the common people because they don't know the truth of the prophecies, because there's no prophecy that says um, the Messiah will come out of, of Galilee. So they had understanding in their mind of, of prophecies, but you know what? They had a wrong understanding. They made a wrong interpretation, or at least it was insufficient. And then the, the most obvious group of all, which is really kind of sad, was this group here that said, hath not the scripture said that Christ cometh of the seed of David out of the town of Bethlehem, where David was. This was a group of people that, that knew the scriptures and rightly interpreted the, the prophecy and said, the Christ has to come from Bethlehem, but this man comes from Nazareth, from Galilee. No prophet comes from there. And what was their mistake? Well, they, they knew the prophecy, but they didn't know the facts. But imagine if you were Matthew, one of those disciples on the road after Christ's resurrection, and he explained to you all the prophecies of his life. And you knew that Jesus was born in Bethlehem to a virgin. He spent time in Egypt. He was raised in Nazareth. He was of the tribe of Judah, a descendant of David. If you knew those Bible prophecies, you would be in the group that would accept Jesus Christ as the Messiah that was sent from God. And you'd make a decision to, to follow after Christ. And as a result of that, you'd have the opportunity for life eternal. And I point that out, friends, because I think it's so important that we have a right understanding of Scripture, that we're not ignorant of them, that we know how to interpret them correctly, 
and that we can apply them and see them as they start to take place in the world around us. I want to finish just with a quote. It's from a, a Bible, Bible commentator. And he says, speaking of this, of all, these, of all these points that come together, he said, all the scattered rays of prophecy concentrate in Jesus as their focus. All these details of the Old Testament come right together and point at Jesus Christ. And we're going to help you in the coming weeks see more of these prophecies of the Lord Jesus Christ in the scripture. All right, Mike, I'll uh, turn it over to you now. Okay, thanks, Dan. And good evening, everyone. Dan's done a great job of taking us through some of the prophecies related to Christ. And uh, we'll try to build upon that as we look at this segment of our, of our presentation tonight, continuing on the theme of tips on understanding God's message. And if we look at our next slide, we can see some of the topic areas that we've in fact treated throughout the course of our, uh, of our seven weeks uh, prior to this evening. And we've got quite a toolbox that we've been able to put together, which is really gives you a, a, a tremendous amount of personal ability now to open up the, the pages of your Bible and to, to read and to do so in a very constructive and a very informative and very fulfilling way. And we looked at right at the outset the fact that we needed to have a purpose when we entered uh, and looked at the, the scriptures. And we just didn't casually open it up like a magazine or a newspaper. And that because of its size, um, we needed to have a plan. We needed to have a structured approach as to how we would, in fact, read through the scriptures. And we've done that uh, and given you that uh, resource and posted it on the website. But also recognizing that as we commenced the, the session this evening, because we're opening a book that, that whose author is God, uh, we need to approach God in prayer to ask him for his, his guidance as we come to, to read his word in the right spirit. And as we read, we need to exercise some patience, particularly for those who might be new to reading the Bible. Uh, there is uh, quite a bit of material, there's quite a bit of information, even navigating around the Bible uh, requires a certain amount of intestinal fortitude and patience. So we need to recognize that there, there is some effort required, but there is a great reward. We tried to outline for you in a simple way the structure of your Bible, both the Old and New Testament, and to see really how the New Testament, that bookshelf, provided the, uh, the, the record of what had been fulfilled from the Old Testament record. And that when we look at our Bible, as we've done throughout the course of our sessions, we've tried to treat both the Old and the New Testament uh, to, to show how they're in fact interconnected and, and interdependent and that we've got the, the same author of both records. We've talked about the value of context and how to not only read for context but to make use of maps so that we've got an idea as to where are we uh, and that helps us to put ourselves into that environment and to perhaps become more keenly aware of what was occurring and, and where events took place. And we really wanted to encourage you to, to make use of Bible marking, to see your Bible, that you can use it in a constructive way to, to mark and record certain observations or, or uh, conclusions um, and different approaches that can then help you to be, uh, have reference points that you can go back to as you start to read more through the scriptures. Now, if you were like me, when I first started reading the Bible, I had thousands of questions. And those are all good things. Those are demonstrate your, your interest, your desire to, to come to a greater comprehension of what the Bible is telling you. And that's 
what God is encouraging us to do when, when we look into the, the scriptures. And we saw that within the construction of your Bible, in some cases it might be uh, in a different location, the, the value of cross-references. And even if we don't have a cross-reference, uh, a marginal reference or a footnote reference in our Bibles, there are other tools that we can avail ourselves online, such as the Treasure of Scriptural Knowledge, which gives you an invaluable archive of references that can help you to see uh, how the Bible is connected and to let the Bible interpret itself. And that was certainly one of the points that Dan was making during his session tonight. And once again, we saw that as God structured his word, he did so in a way that would help us to remember things. And he uses both themes and Bible echoes to, to, to show how those thoughts, those ideas are in fact carried throughout scripture and how the Old Testament in particular makes reference back or the New Testament makes reference back to the Old Testament so that we can come to a richer understanding. So we've got quite a toolkit. So I certainly try to, to, to enable you to, to open up your Bible and to read with more clarity and with greater level of comprehension. But our tool for this evening uh, in this uh, week eight is that of communication. One of the best ways to, to, to really come to uh, a clear understanding of the scriptures is to talk about it, to talk about it with your family, to talk about it with your friends, to talk about it in particular with other Bible students, because there is a, a strength that comes from interacting with one another. And that's by, by means of communication. You can do it both in a written form, but in many cases, the scriptures are best understood in uh, conversation. Now in today's environment, that may have to be virtually, but ideally it's face to face. And I thought this graphic was kind of uh, cute and somewhat interesting. He uses a phrase from the prophecy of Isaiah, who was a contemporary with Micah that Dan made reference to, who says, come let us reason together. And you can see from these two figures that when they're reasoning together, there's a communication, there's a verbal expression. And that if you can sort of zoom back and don't get cross-eyed, you can see that it actually looks like a little smiley face. But that's really not uh, trivial in, in what it's presenting. It's showing that when we converse with one another, we can come to a richer understanding of the Bible. And we're able to do it even as lay people, that we don't need to have a, a doctrine in divinity to, to understand the scriptures. We just need to have our four Ps and our toolbox with us, and then we can converse with each other about the scriptures. So if we go on to our next slide, we can see what the example that uh, Dan actually made reference to, I had a sense of where Dan was going, but I thought this reference in particular helped to underscore what we were trying to emphasize in this, uh, this session tonight. And that in Luke 24, and there's a larger section of which I've only quoted uh, from, from a smaller section, in Luke 24, on the, while they're on the road to Emmaus, and this is the time in which Jesus has now uh, been, been resurrected. He rejoins himself with two of his disciples, but they're not aware that this is in fact the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're told him, behold, two of them went in that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about three score furlongs. So this was uh, on a footpath and they were uh, talking as it says in verse 14 to one another of all the things which had happened. And there was tremendous things that filled their, their thoughts and their hearts. Uh, and you can see that they were wrestling with what had transpired in, in Jerusalem with the death of Jesus of Nazareth. 
And we're told in verse 15, and it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, and that really touches on almost an echo back to the statement in uh, Isaiah chapter 1. They communed together and they reasoned. These were Bible believers who were in a discussion with with each other, trying to come to grips with what had transpired. And Jesus himself drew near, we're told, and went with them. But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And now Dan has really emphasized that in his prophecy section about how essential the, the prophecy of the Messiah, the coming Christ, was, was to the, the Old Testament framework. And that it was a theme that appears in every record. And he was availing himself of the writings of both Moses and all the prophets to give evidence about what the the Messiah would accomplish and what would transpire with him. And that he used the scriptures as his authority as he reasoned with these individuals while they were journeying uh, to the the, the village of Emmaus. And it showed the, the power of this direct conversation. They were reasoning together. And Jesus was there to to aid them to come to a correct understanding. Now, ultimately, when they were to partake of a meal, Jesus would disclose himself to them such that they would recognize that they had, the Messiah had in fact been with them the whole time. But prior to that, they just believed that this was uh, a sincere Bible student who was there to, to educate them. And that's really what we can benefit from when we reason together. Well, if we look at our next example, as we move forward into the record of the Acts of the Apostles, once again, we've got another case in which we've got an individual who needs help to come to a correct understanding of what he's reading in the Bible. And there's a man uh, who has been appointed to to assist him. And this appears in Acts chapter 8, and it's the episode of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And once again, I think the pictures just help to, to really emphasize how these conversations go. They're very personal, they're, they're very intimate, in, in, and, and they're focusing on understanding the scriptures. And we can see from this section in Acts chapter 8, and Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah, and that's, it's actually the prophet Isaiah, but in, in, it's how it's written in the, the New Testament, and said, understandest what thou readest. So here he comes upon this individual who's been reading from a scroll, a record from the prophecy of Isaiah. And the individual makes this response to Philip. And he said, how can I accept some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with them. Now in Acts chapter eight, this individual had actually been, had gone to Jerusalem and to worship and was in fact returning. So this was, once again, a Bible student, a Bible believer, but he needed some help. He needed some guidance as to how to understand certain passages from the Old Testament. And Philip was a resource to help him in that regard. The place of the scripture which he read was this, and the story continues. He was led as a sheep to a slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. So he reads that statement, and sometimes we can find ourselves in that position. We read something from the scripture, perhaps even that passage from Hosea chapter 11 that Dan mentioned. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or of some other man? 
So he was scratching his head, trying to understand what, who is this spoken about here? Is Isaiah talking about himself or is he making reference to another individual? And we're told that Philip would respond to that question in this manner. Then Philip opened his mouth. So there's that idea of mouth, it's verbal communication. And he began at the same scripture. So he starts at that same point where, where the Ethiopian eunuch had difficulty and he preached unto him Jesus. So he's following perhaps the, the, the same model that Jesus had followed uh, when speaking to those individuals on the road to Emmaus. Now, in that case, he'd used both Moses and the prophets. Here, now Philip is going to be ready to respond by the the prophecy of Isaiah in particular. And he's going to speak to this individual about what was being really communicated by the, the section from Isaiah 53. Well, if we look at our third reference, once again, continuing on in Acts chapter 8, and I think it's helpful to see this because as the apostles went forward into different parts of the world, they were there to spread the word. They were there to pass along their knowledge to others that they might enrich their belief in the God of Israel and the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. And here in Acts chapter 18, once again, it's this idea of reasoning together. We find in the opening verses of that chapter, after these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth. So he's now up in the area of, of Asia Minor. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontius, lately come from Italy. Now Pontius was actually one of those places that was represented by those who attended the Feast of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And this may have been where Aquila had first come into contact with the, with the apostles. And his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome. So just as Dan had shown how an edict uh, had led to the, the, the movement of Mary and Joseph down to the area of Bethlehem, so too there is an effect by the decree made by the Roman authorities such that these individuals were forced to depart from Rome. And they come unto Paul, who is now residing in Corinth. And because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought, for by their occupation they were tent makers. And I think it's noteworthy to, to, to pick up on that point. Although they were Bible students, although they were talk, telling others about this gospel message, they still had a day-to-day -day occupation. They were not funded by other believers. They were, in fact, responsible to, to care for their own needs. And that's actually one of the unique facets of the, the Christadelphian community. And in verse 4, we're told, And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. So he reasons together, and there's that language right back to Isaiah chapter 1, on a weekly basis, and he's persuading both the Jews and those who were the Greeks, who were in fact the Hellenist uh, Jews. He's, he's interacting with them to, to try to correct their false understanding of the Messiah, and, and Dan pointed to that as far as some having an incorrect view of different prophecies. We're told in verse 5, And when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. So there's, there's a central focus towards this reasoning. It's trying to, to advance the, the, the gospel of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that would continue on, and we will leave this reference for you to look at on your own, with the further work that was done by Aquila and Priscilla, 
reasoning with a man called Apollos, who was from the city of Alexandria. And once again, he needed some, some support or some guidance. So here we can see from Christ and throughout the, the Acts of the Apostles to this point, how we're, we've got a pattern. We've got a, an arrangement where there's conversation that's going on, that they're reasoning from, from the scriptures to come to a correct and a fuller understanding of what God's message is about. And that's really the, 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 one of the strongest tools that we can leave you with and encourage you to avail yourself of other individuals who are Bible students to, to come to a richer understanding of God's word. Well, the last example for us in Acts chapter 17 is also something that we would encourage you to do because reasoning together, um, we need to also recognize that um, we're fallible beings uh, and that we, we, we need support from each other. And at times we, we need to ensure that we're, we're testing what we're hearing. And this is an example from Acts chapter 17. We're told, and the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind. So they never doubted the word, and, but they also went the extra step and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. So they were going to test the, the, what was being spoken of by Paul and the other apostles and disciples, and they wanted to make sure that it agreed with what the Old Testament said, that Old Testament record that they had in their possessions. So, and they actively searched it daily. And that's something we need to do. And we've got the capacity to do it with the tools that we've been equipped with through the course of our seminar. We have the, the ability to, to search the Old Testament and to test what in fact is the truth. Therefore, many of them believed also of honorable women which were Greeks and of men, not a few. And that's the value of testing, is that you become convinced in what you're reading. It's something that makes good sense. There's a logic, there's a reason behind it. And it also then becomes something that you can use as a trustworthy and a reliable uh, frame of reference in how you make certain decisions in your life and how you order your life before God. So I thought that that was a, a nice way to conclude this, this particular section in, in week eight, to think about the, the value of, of reasoning together. Um, next week, the, the sessions will continue. Uh, in this case, Bible prophecy, focusing on the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus Christ, looking at those messianic Psalms, those prophecies from, from the book of Psalms, and that may be a bit of an eye-opener for you. And get to, getting on the theme of getting to know your Bible, why did Jesus teach in parables? We're going to see that that was an important part of, of how he communicated lessons to his hearers and how he used a particular structure such that they would have something that they could continue to reflect upon and to reason together with as they tried to understand what, in fact, the Lord Jesus Christ was teaching them. So once again, just wanted to draw your attention to how you can connect with us by...